0: With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, Herd Tell Show. It's a Wednesday, folks, halfway through the work week. Hope you're proceeding through it as well as you can be expected. It is August the 24th. It is the year of our Lord 2022. And it's Hardtell's Show. I'm Andrew Dawson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time and joining us as we continue to try to turn down the noise of the news cycle and get to the things that really matter. We do that because the most important thing we can do with information is discern the times we live in, not just reacting, not just shooting off tweets or yelling at the TV actually figuring out what's going on so we can decide how best to react to it. A couple of stories we want to turn down, a couple of things that have been kind of loud. You might remember up in Michigan, the fellers who hatched a plot, allegedly, to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer up in Michigan. Uh, And then the online folks got involved because there was a mistrial and there's been some accusations of FBI malfeasance and were they entrapped into it. Well, we've got a conviction now. We'll go through that story. In just a little bit, closing the program, we always try to do something uplifting or some good news. Uh, There's a program on college campuses in West Virginia involving the opioid crisis and recovery in a way of getting people some training for not only empathy and therapy training, but they're also going to start getting Narcan in the hands of more and more people and institutions try to prevent overdose deaths. We'll talk about that at the end of the program uh our guest today new face to the program hasn't been on before he will be back though because we had a great conversation charles brant from young voices he's also a law student we're going to talk about the filibuster now we haven't heard a lot about the filibuster last few weeks why is that well it's because the Democratic Party managed to push through some legislation. Isn't that funny? Once they actually did their job, they didn't want to talk about revoking the filibuster all of a sudden. After 18 months of talking about the filibuster, we're going to go back and review that because that's part of turning down the noise. It's not just in the moment. It's going back and going, why did we debate something that never happened? Well, and to be fair here, it's not just a Democratic thing because remember, President Trump wanted to get rid of the filibuster and Mitch McConnell bucked back against him and didn't do it. This is going to come up every time we have a slim majority who's not going to get what they want. They're going to get rid of the filibuster. So let's do some review and let's project ahead and talk about the filibuster. Charles Brandt, a great Young Voices contributor, sharp guy. Enjoyed our conversation with him. He's our guest today. Hang around for that. But first, um, we got some inside politics stuff. We got to talk because it's going to cross a lot of streams and it goes to what's going on in this midterm election right now. Now, one of our core principles here is there's no such thing as a leak. If people don't want stuff out, it doesn't get out. If a story gets out, it's because somebody wants it out, especially in politics, because these folks usually know what they're doing. I'm going to give you another little inside tip that I got taught because I didn't know it either when I first started doing this with writing in media. Somebody very, very smart and somebody who had been there and has done this before and has done media for a long time since told me a long time ago, when you're dealing with Congress and the Senate, Pay attention to the staffers and pay attention to the fundraisers, because if you're paying attention to them, you're going to know where the elected officials are going to wind up because those folks know what's actually really going on. So a lot of times when you have leaks, you have things going on, you have counter narratives going out. Those are the staffers working on behalf of their primaries. That's how these stories get circulated around. I give you that background because listen to this story. We're going to work off of Axios part here. Senator Rick Scott. Now, you remember back in the spring, he released that ridiculous manifesto with his talking points. It was supposed to be like a new contract with America kind of thing, and everybody basically mocked it and laughed it. In fact, his own party was pretty upset about it, including Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader. Uh, There's been a little bit of heat between the Scott camp and the McConnell camp ever since and on a couple other levels. Oh, by the way, Rick Scott is in charge of the National Republic Senatorial Committee. Now, that's the fundraising arm. I know this is a little wonky, but you need to know these things. That's the fundraising arm for the Senate that's supposed to be promoting candidates and spreading money and getting the majority back for the Republicans. That's his job. That's what he's supposed to do. What has happened over the last few months, especially the last year and a half, Scott wants to be president. And he's been accused by some, including in his own party, of using the NRSC as his stepping stone to set up his own presidential campaign. That's the backdrop to this. So, remember, no such thing as a leak. All of a sudden, on Tuesday, it comes out that Rick Scott, this is from Axios, is spending part of his congressional recess on a luxury yacht in Italy with his family after criticizing President Biden for vacationing in Delaware. Axios has learned. Quick pause. The vacation thing is stupid. It was stupid when they were following Donald Trump to every single golf course. It was stupid when they follow um, Biden every time he goes home to Delaware, although he doesn't get as much gruff in the media than President Trump did because, you know, Media likes President Biden a whole lot more. I do think Trump paid golf way too much, but let's be honest here. This is a bipartisan thing. Everybody's going to gripe every time the president takes a vacation. The president is always in contact. It doesn't really matter if he's in the Oval Office or not. Every, it's a dumb story. It's always a dumb story. However, senator in on a yacht, this is not going to be a good look. Why this matters from Axios, Scott is the chair of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, whose job is to win back a GOP majority in the upper chamber. Republicans' prospects for winning back the Senate have been worsening over the course of the summer. He's already been under fire for his management of the committee and vacationing in Europe while Republicans face cash problems and rough deadlines about their midterm chances could further hurt his standing. Now, remember last week we covered the fact that they were rerouting how a lot of the fundraising is doing and Mitch McConnell and his arm and his political committee is starting to dump a lot of money into some Senate races that should have been pretty easy wins like in Ohio. Um, so this is going back to that beef between McConnell and Scott. Um, now why does this matter? Somebody leaked this. Why did they leak it? Well, again, there's been a lot of heat between McConnell and Scott and most of the last few days, the Scott people and staffers have been nipping about Mitch McConnell, but the donor base isn't happy and Mitch McConnell isn't happy. Now I'm just going to do a little bit of an educated guess. And I talked to a couple different people. I would not bet against this coming from the McConnell camp and putting Rick back in his place about who's who and what's what, especially because he just came out. Scott had been very vocal about mocking President Biden. Cocaine Mitch, it's hard to get one over on him. I think they set him up for this to make him look bad. Remember, this recess is all about Senate's, uh, the Senate and the House going home to campaign for the midterms. So if you're going to go get on a yacht, by the way, this is just a dumb idea. You go get on a yacht in Italy in the middle of the midterm elections when everybody else is going back to their districts and their states to try to drum up support. You're going to get a lot of flack when you release a manifesto that everybody mocks back in the spring. trying to set up your own presidential campaign. You're going to get doubly mocked because things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Rick Scott has gotten way over his skis here. He's not doing the job he's doing. But the big picture here is between Rick Scott and Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party, they're starting to feel like they're not going to get the U.S. Senate, and they're starting to jockey at whose fault that's going to be. And the establishment folks, the donors and Mitch McConnell, are going to try to put all the blame on Rick Scott, and they might have a very good point. You got that job, you got to get the job done. And if you're going to run for president and you don't do the job you're currently having, that makes you look bad, really bad. So Rick Scott, you're on a boat in more ways than one because your own party isn't real happy with you and you're not doing the job you were assigned to. And if the Democrats take an outright majority in the Senate, it sure looks like Rick Scott's going to be the guy that's going to get blamed for a lot of that. More hotel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, one of the long-running stories of the last 18 months is actually something that didn't happen. We're going to recap and talk about it with our friend Charles Brand. He's a Young Voices contributor. He's doing the studying thing at GW Law. Really impressive young man. Excited to talk to him. Charles, how are you, my friend? Great to have you.
1: I'm great, Andrew, and thank you for those kind words. Thank you for having me on.
0: Appreciate it. You did some writing about the hot, one of the real hot political topics And then it came for naught. And then all of a sudden, it's amazing. The Senate and the House are out of session. Nobody's been talking about this for about two or three weeks. Ain't it funny how that works out? We're talking about the filibuster, of course. Let's start big picture, though, because now that this has died down, now that we listened to this for two years and Joe Manchin's going to end the Republic and da-da-da-da-da, let's just start simple and work back Mm -hmm. through this because I think there's a lot of lessons to learn here. Uh, But start with what the filibuster is, not the buzzword. The actual device as a legislative tool for the United States Senate.
1: Absolutely. So the Senate filibuster is the 22nd rule of the Senate, um, and it provides that 60 votes, 60 senators, are necessary to invoke what is called cloture, which essentially uh, is a motion to end debate on a bill and to put that bill on a conveyor belt to passage. Over the years, Unlimited debate has uh, been pretty universal in the Senate going, you know, all the way back to the founding. Uh, But the modern filibuster really didn't come apart, uh, come about until 1917, when under the pressure of um, Woodrow Wilson, the uh, Republicans in the Senate acquiesced and allowed uh, cloture to be put in the Senate rule book. In the 1970s, uh, the threshold was actually lowered from 67 senators, so two-thirds, of that body, the same amount constitutionally required to ratify a treaty for, uh, to, to to 60 votes, which is now three-fifths of that body, which is seven less, of course. So it's less onerous than it was in the 1970s. So in sum, the Senate filibusters the 22nd rule of the Senate, um, and it imposes a supermajority requirement on the passage of traditional policy-based legislation. I say traditional policy-based legislation because there is um, a carve out for the filibuster provided in the Congressional Budget Act of 1974. Um, That procedure is called budget reconciliation. I'm sure uh, many of your listeners have heard those dreaded words. uh Uh-oh, budget reconciliation, done, done, done. You know, what is Joe Manchin okay today? Or what is Kristen Sinema okay today? Well, budget reconciliation allows certain measures, with budgetary impact, budgetary impact that is beyond merely incidental, mind you, to to go through the Senate, the the upper chamber of Congress, with only 51 votes, and it limits debate, I believe, at 20 hours in the Senate and 10 hours between both houses. So there is no unlimited debate for bills uh, enacted through budget reconciliation. But the Senate Byrd Rule, another institutional norm of the Senate, prevents senators from lodging policies into budget reconciliation bills, generally speaking. Those measures have to be, strictly speaking, budgetary.
0: Yeah, and the Bird rule is for Robert C. Bird, longtime time uh, senator from the state of West Virginia, who absolutely reveled in arcane measures of how the Senate worked. It's another story for another day. But he loved that kind of stuff. That's what he delved into, and that's one of the things he put in place. We all know this, of course, because we just watched the reconciliation process. We now have a more uh, colloquial term for it called votorama, that we've done now done twice in the last few weeks using this process, but that's all because they're trying to go around filibusters, they're trying to work around majorities. Let's just cut to the chase here. Now that we've gone through this process and people were screaming that we have to change the filibuster, and we didn't change the filibuster, and we still got this legislative package and other things. Uh, gun control got passed. If you told anybody in the spring that gun control would get through Congress, this Senate and this Congress, they would have thought you were crazy. Yet it happened. Would after Uvalde, they got uh, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, Build Back Mansion, whatever you want to call it. They got that through. Here was my problem all along with filibuster, and it wouldn't have mattered. You know, the Democrats are nominally in power, but they have a split Senate, so not really. Was there any version of get rid of the filibuster that doesn't start when either side proposes it with my side isn't getting our way. Let's get rid of this.
1: Short answer. No, absolutely not. Um, In fact, I might go so far as to say that. A a, an exception to the filibuster or a carve out uh, to the filibuster is 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 a mischaracterization in truth were one side of the aisle to to ditch the Senate filibuster, which only requires 51 votes, mind you. So a simple majority of the Senate can 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 modify the Senate rule book. It's called the nuclear option, and for good reason. Uh, the, the Senate uh, filibuster, you know, looking at, at recent history, you know, look at, at Donald Trump's presidency. I believe at one point he uh, threatened. Uh, pulling the nuclear trigger and nuking the filibuster to to get funding for his border wall—it was it was something like that. Luckily, Mitch McConnell uh, refused to acquiesce in that uh, uh, demand, and and so Trump didn't get his funds for the border wall, or at least not <laughs> the 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 the, the uh, perhaps constitutionally proper way. Um, if we look at Joe Biden's presidency and all the times that 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 Joe Biden has. Uh, inch toward nuking the filibuster or his his congressional democrats have have advocated for for the nuclear option it's been when republicans have signaled that they're not going to sign on to a a partisan uh legislative ambition um back last year it was voting rights um uh, democrats had the ambition to enact hr 1 which would have nationalized voting laws across the country and provided for certain uh, basic um, guarantees. Insofar as like ID is concerned, it would actually void voter ID laws in all uh, in most most states in the union. So th- there was that. It ended up getting watered down by Joe Manchin, but Republicans weren't willing to sign on to that either. Uh, Democrats have have discussed doing it to to Codify uh, the the abortion protections enshrined in vote Roe versus Wade and and uh, Casey our Planned Parenthood v. Casey, um, but Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin have been resolute in their uh, their um, their loyalty to the filibuster and in in not abandoning that role. So, just looking at modern history, we can see that it it, it would appear the nuclear option is only invoked or only threatened when one sides agenda is stymied, but it's more complicated. If we go back to 2013, we can actually see that Harry Reid uh, started this nuking process, so to speak. When Republicans in the Senate were filibustering all of President Obama's um, judicial appointees, Uh, Senator Harry Reid, the Senate Majority Leader from Nevada, decided to ditch the filibuster, the 60 vote threshold for All executive appointees and judicial appointees, except Supreme Court justices, that was in 2013. Well, lo and behold, in 2017, uh, Mitch McConnell um, said, "Well, hey, I'll do you one better, and I'm going to I'm going to ditch the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees in addition to the rest." So we kind of finished off the filibuster for nominees, and now uh, we have three appointees from. Uh, 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 appointed by Donald Trump, all of whom voted uh, to, to overturn Roe v. Wade in June in, in the Dobbs decision. Interesting, huh? That Harry Reid's decision in 2013, in my view, is somewhat responsible for our current court composition. Uh, and I think responsible for some of the decisions they've handed down this term, which has been groundbreaking for the conservative legal movement in more ways than one.
0: Yeah. And isn't this come down to when you start talking about something that is a rule, you mentioned it's the 22nd one. So it wasn't the first and it's not going to be the last rule of the Senate. This is self-imposed by the Senate. This isn't something it's within the boundaries of their constitutional authority, but it's not in the Constitution. This is something that they've already done carve outs for. They've talked about doing other carve outs. That's the argument that they were pitching Cinnamon Mansion, going, okay, well, we'll just do a voting carve out, or we'll just do an economic carve out, or we'll just do a you know purple hippopotamus carve out, whatever the case is going to be next week when we come back again. That's the that's the mechanism of filibuster. The overall picture of the filibuster, though, and Joe Manchin basically made this argument in defending it, was look at how the Senate functions. If you look historically trend wise, the Senate and Congress and the presidency, the the triplicate where one party has all three is usually short lived. The American people kind of like because of their voting record, whatever they say in polling, they like split government. They they kind of like the gridlock. So when you've got like a 50 50 Senate, is it unfair to say it's it's kind of hard to argue that you need to get rid of this rule? because you have a mandate for such and such when you have a 50-50 Senate to start with and an American voting populace that has a habit of splitting the government uh, pretty regularly after somebody has control of all three branches, at least over the last 20 some years.
1: I think the American people are definitely a fan of supermajority majority requirements uh, for, for, for voting, at least with respect to the filibuster in that, you know maybe democrats were disappointed or, or not maybe they were extremely disappointed by some of the things that that they were not able to enact. the solution is obvious however it's uh, elect more democrats in the senate you'll recall that uh in november 2020 democrats lost very winnable senate races um, in maine um in north carolina and i'm sure there were others as well um they could have uh gotten together in an alternate, on an alternate timeline, sufficient votes to to ditch the Senate filibuster, enact HR one or something similar. Uh, in addition to to build back better in, in its in its original form, which would have been you know just massive in terms of the cost. Um, so too would Republicans have had victories in in, in you know between twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen. Donald Trump could have perhaps passed a nationwide right to work law. Uh, he could have maybe secured additional funding for the Southern border, uh, changed immigration policies, uh, you know, there were still abortion protections enshrined in Roe v. Wade at that time, but, but now, you know, ostensibly Republicans could, could take, uh, take an ax to abortion protections provided for by state law. I think there might be constitutional reservations to such a, to such a piece of legislation, but the point is that it's an insurance mechanism for the opposition party. It basically ensures, okay, uh, right now we're in the mi- right now we're in the minority, we're the opposition. Well, we're able to use the filibuster to stop the legislation the majority would like to enact, legislation that our constituents in our in our blue states are simply not a fan of. So during the Donald Trump presidency, that would include right to work laws, for instance. The unions are no fan. But upon Joe Biden's inauguration, Democrats would have been able to reverse or well, repeal and then reverse each and every one of the aforementioned conservative victories I've just listed. They would have been able to do it uh, with just a simple majority in the Senate. It would not be safeguarded by the 60 vote threshold. And so as a result, the policy landscape of the country would be more pendular. It would swing back and forth every two to six years as the Senate changed hands. And every election for the Senate, so every midterm even, would basically be an existential contest for for legislative domination over the entire country. The filibuster by being a minoritarian institution, one which gives disproportionate influence to the opposition party, serves the constitutional function that our framers envisioned. Alexander Hamilton imagined the Senate as the kind of deliberative cooling saucer of national politics. I think where bad ideas would go to die uh, and good ideas would go to get better, to become sharpened uh, before, before being promulgated nationwide. So I think it's an insurance policy of, of, of sorts for the minority party, the opposition, currently the Republicans. Uh, imagine how unhappy they would be had Mitch McConnell buckled under the pressure from President Trump. Um, they would be, I would imagine, uh, despondent as we speak, um, as Democrats would have been in 2017, 2018. But notice how in each situation, nuking the filibuster, makes one half of the country extremely unhappy and I think feel extremely unstable insofar as their policy expectations are concerned.
0: Yeah. Talking to Charles Brandt, our friend, Uh, we're going to continue to talk about the filibuster. We're going to get into the politics of it. We talked about the legal ramifications. We talked about the policies of it. We're going to talk about the politics a little bit more. He's got a piece out in American Thinker about the filibuster. Going to continue to talk to Charles Brandt on her tell. Right after this, Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. He just had a shot of chai tea, so he's ready to go. He is Charles Brand, he's our friend from Young Voices. Uh, he's a GW law. Uh, we talked about the mechanics of this because it is a Senate rule and those kind of get arcane and, and nuts and boltsy and wonky real quick. We talked about the policies of it. Let's talk the political side of this for just a minute, uh, all for the last two years. And it was the Democrats pushing. And again, it's not that the Republicans wouldn't do it. That's just how it happened to fall this time. The Democrats were basically arguing that, well, unless you either change the rules of the Senate and give us more seats in the Senate or you do the filibuster. We're never going to get anything passed. Well, now we got some data. They got plenty of stuff passed. They actually had a pretty, you know, the supporters of President Biden are having a pretty good run of going. Well, look at all the stuff we've accomplished legislatively. That kind of hurts that argument. then the other thing that hurts that argument is. You're looking now with the benefit of hindsight, they've got a pretty good look at maybe even holding the Senate or maybe even taking it out right now. Isn't part of the discussion here that we don't talk about the filibuster is politics change way faster than we think it is. So maybe we should be really, really slow about pulling up the old farm jokes. Like if you go out in a field and there's a fence there, it's probably there for a reason. You probably don't want to take it down. Don't we need a little bit more of that in this debate of like, okay, in the moment we have this heated rhetoric. We gotta pass this right now or the Earth's going to just splatter into a thousand pieces. That kind of just insane rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And then you look at it a couple of months later, it's like, man, the Democratic Party's actually in pretty good shape here, all things considered. Isn't that an argument for some moderation here? I think that's a great point.
1: I mean, look at Joe Biden's legislative achievements. Uh even if you disagree, I mean he he has been Uh, or or rather the Democrats in Congress have been relatively prolific these past two years. They passed uh, 1.9 trillion in spending uh, through the the American Rescue Plan. Uh, They passed about, uh, I think, 900 billion, about a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending, something Donald Trump could not get across the finish line. Um, And they just recently okayed, I I, I think, about 700 billion in in taxes and spending uh, for for, uh, predominantly the climate lobby. So, so insofar as legislative accomplishments are concerned, I think Democrats have a strong case to make to their voters, their base that they have delivered, um, to say nothing on the merits of what they've, they've enacted these past couple of years. But I think you're right. Oh, you know, it's how, how often have we heard this? Oh, if we don't nuke the filibuster, we're not going to get anything done. Republican obstructionism will, will define the entire Joe Biden presidency. Well, really, that's not true. Um, as we've seen, a lot of uh, what stood in the way wasn't Republican, wasn't Republicans at all, but actually Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Um, she, uh, I think, took out certain um, equity provisions that she wasn't a fan of, as as they were going through budget reconciliation, and and, and Joe Manchin slipped in a couple provisions that might, you know, sweeten the situation for for. Uh, you know, oil. You know, getting oil permits or, or or things like that. But, but yeah, I mean, the the legislative record here suggests that they didn't need the filibuster. Um, they perhaps needed the filibuster to enact the original version of Build Back Better and had you know Sarah Gideon beat Susan Collins in twenty twenty. Um, you know, we might be having a very different conversation right now, but she didn't. She didn't. And Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, uh, both of whom represent uh, you know, relatively conservative states calculated that it, it, simply wasn't worth it perhaps for political reasons, but also I think for institutional reasons, they both spoken about, uh, the negative, you know, policy consequences that would befall the nation were the filibuster, not there to kind of slow, uh, the process a- a- and call for deliberation before we, we, we enact revolutionary change, uh, about a month ago. And, and the news for my piece with American Thinker was that Democrats were, were in front of the Supreme Court, again, calling uh, for the elimination of the filibuster. Uh, there it was um, abortion, uh, specifically nuke the filibuster to codify Roe v. Wade. Um, what's somewhat short-sighted about that uh, you know, proposal is that it's not even uh, you know, constitutionally certain that the federal government could regulate abortion if it wanted to. Uh, Prior to Roe, the hook was the 14th Amendment, which allows the federal government to enforce certain uh, fundamental liberties against the state governments. With that gone, there's really no independent basis for the federal government to regulate abortion or to provide access, therefore, unless maybe it's the Commerce Clause. But that aside, what you see is a lot of screaming, a lot of our priorities are the most important and we need to pass them now. There's very little uh, pondering of the long-term consequences. And when I say long-term, I mean like more than two weeks. Um, it, it, you, you mentioned that, that Republicans, or excuse me, that Democrats could, could hold on to the Senate or perhaps expand their majority and actually take their nominal majority to an actual majority. I think the polling suggests that that's totally possible. Some of these polls coming out of uh, Pennsylvania um, and, and Arizona are just uh, seem pretty brutal. You know, Pennsylvania, especially, it's equally likely. I think Republicans could take the chamber, um, and Republicans could take the House. And though Joe Biden would be there to 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 veto legislation enacted by a Republican Congress, um, in twenty twenty four, that might very well not be the case. And this goes back to what I was saying before, where like you know we'd have a very we'd have very pendular policies, which wouldn't be good for the country. It wouldn't be good for taxpayers. It wouldn't be good for any person just planning their activity in the national economy. It's good to know, you know, what the law actually says. With no filibuster, I imagine you'd have this very pendular effect going back and forth between a liberal America and a conservative. But the politics of it, in short, are very myopic. They're concerned with shoving policies the opposition despises down the opposition's throat. They're not so much concerned with the long-term growth, uh, prosperity, um, and stability of our nation.
0: Yeah, and I think, um, Charles Brandt joining us, part of this is, and we've been beating up on the Democrats a little bit because we've been listening to them howl about it for the last 18 months, let's not be myopic ourselves, let's remember, and you touched on it in your piece, it was President Trump that for the better part of almost three years straight was howling at Mitch McConnell and them to get rid of the filibuster, to push through all his stuff, McConnell Uh, resisted that. This is always going to be a bipartisan thing where whoever's in power and they don't have 60 votes, because I don't know that we'll get to that threshold anytime soon, at least probably the next few election cycles, certainly. If you're not going to have a a large majority in the Senate, that party that has the majority but not enough of a majority is going to howl about this, and they're going to want to reach for that tool. What's the institutional argument besides the partisanship, besides the I just want to do this, and you've touched on it a little bit, but just to find it down for us, what's the institutional argument of, hey, we have this rule specifically because there aren't big majorities right now in our current election cycles. And you all going to have to work together a little bit here. I know everybody hates that bipartisan word, but that's pretty much what you're getting when you enforce this, the rules put in place. Dare I say it for all the banging I do on the U.S. Senate as being somewhat of a clown show from time to time, like Voterama last weekend when it was. Maybe maybe the senators that put these rules in might have known what they were doing.
1: So at at our core, our country is a union of 50 semi-sovereign republics. In his uh, famous dissent from a case decided in the early 1900s called Lochner, uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, expressed that the Constitution was designed for people of many different viewpoints for people of many different backgrounds, for people of many different ideologies. Those ideologies manifest themselves in the policies of the state governments. California is very different from Texas, which is very different from Ohio, which is very different from Vermont. Those voters have spoken uh, and those uh, voters have decided to take their republic, their uh, semi-sovereign, semi-autonomous, mini-republic in a certain direction perhaps against uh, the grain of the other states. But let us not forget that at our core, we are not a democracy. We are a republic. We're a a democratic republic, a constitutional republic, but a republic. And the Senate was designed to be an anti-democratic element of that republic, one which furthers the interests of the state governments, the states as institutions, often at the expense of popular opinion. When one half of the country, or rather, were one half of the country able, on the thinnest of margins, to scarf policies down the other half of the country's throat. I think it would breed a lot of partisan rancor in our politics more than we even see today. You would have big states teaming up on small states like Wyoming, uh, like Vermont, like New Hampshire, like Rhode Island, um, like Alaska. Um, Our framers understood that rural states were always going to have different wants and needs. From their urban counterparts and now their suburban counterparts. And the Senate, which came about uh, through something called the Connecticut Compromise, a compromise between the big states and the small states as they were working together to draft the United States Constitution, allowed the small states to have equal say to the large states, that of which they sorely lack in the House of Representatives. Mind you, California has over 50 representatives in the House. Um, itty-bitty Alaska has won. Um, So the Senate in general was a means of ensuring equality among the states. The Senate filibuster is an even more onerous anti-majoritarian requirement on top of all. One which requires that there be a consensus among the states, a supermajority of states before the country enact revolutionary legislation. I want to talk for a minute about the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This is a monumental piece of legislation, one that was instrumental in breaking down Jim Crow and its grip on the southern states of our country. But let's not forget that Brown versus Board of Education actually already required the states to desegregate with quote all deliberate speed, whatever that means. Um, they were slow rolling it for years. The Southern states were were, were slow rolling it, um, uh, and and the Civil Rights Act I think really was what pushed the nation over the finish line to ripping Jim Crow from the roots up by having to surmount a filibuster of Southern senators and getting, I think, over 70 votes in the Senate. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was furnished with a super, a a, a, a legitimizing quality to it. And what I mean to say is, because the South was able to air its grievances for extended periods of time on the floor of the Senate, but the majority was relentless and was able to cobble together the votes to get the Civil Rights Act across the finish line and to President Johnson's death. The South, I think, was forced to contend with this legitimizing force of a supermajority. There's this scholar named Keith Whittington who has this kind of supermajority theory of constitutional legitimacy. The idea is that the Constitution is legitimate because it required a supermajority uh, uh, to come into law, a supermajority of our polity to enact it, to enshrine it as the fundamental law of the land. How is the filibuster any different with respect to just traditional policy-based legislation enacted within the confines of the Constitution? I think it furnishes our most pivotal policy policies with a, a sort of legitimization that forces the, 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 oppo- the opponents of those policies to, in a sense, accept their legitimacy as the law of the land. And I think with respect to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, having to get over those relentless, hours-long Southern filibusters, and it wasn't just one person, it wasn't just Strom Thurmond. I mean, massive delegations of Southern senators were ruthlessly attacking the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But the the Republicans uh, in the Senate in addition to the to, to the kind of northern um midwestern democrats uh, were 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 quite uh um consistent and were able to get together those votes and i really think it made it a lot harder for the south to resist desegregation much longer
0: uh since i'm on your twitter feed you can tell people all about yours you can also tell them what you've got going on until we get you back my friend let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with what you got going on until we get you back on Hertel again.
1: First off, thank you so much for having me, Andrew. It's been a great, uh, great opportunity. Um, your listeners can find me on Twitter. I'm um, Charlie brandt forty four, um, and um, you can also look out for my most recent piece in the Federalist. If you're um, if you if you have that subscription, it's about the Democrats' most recent uh, plan to put term limits on Supreme Court justices.
0: We'll be looking for that. We will link to all those pieces in our show notes. Like we always say, read the whole thing for yourself, decide for yourself and go from there. Charles Brandt, we'll have you back. Great job today. Appreciate it, my friend.
1: Thanks so much, Andrew. Have a good
0: one. Thank you, sir. I heard tell. Hey, remember that crazy thing up in Michigan where the folks apparently had this wackadoo idea to kidnap Governor Gretchen Wilmer, Whitmer? Hey, remember that thing up in Michigan a while back where the four guys were apparently going to kidnap uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, and they got arrested for it, and then they had a trial about it, and two of the defendants pled guilty, and then there was the other trial that wound up in a mistrial, and it came out A lot of stuff about how the FBI did not handle this investigation by the book. There was some uh, malfeasance on the parts of some of the agents. There was a couple of really loud things online about this whole thing was an entrapment and the people were completely innocent and da-da-da-da-da. We have some resolution on this case. Let's go to CNN. A federal jury on Tuesday found two men guilty of conspiring to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer back in 2020. Adam Fox and Barry Croft faced a maximum sentence of life in prison for kidnapping conspiracy convictions. They were also convicted on one count of conspiracy to use weapons of mass destruction. Their first trial ended in a mistrial. Prosecutors alleged that Fox was the ringleader of a plot to kidnap the Democratic governor from her summer home, and Croft was part of the plan and practiced detonating explosives in preparation. Now, online. Folks on the right got real twisted up about this because of the anti FBI narrative right now. Now, if you want to say there's corruption in the FBI, absolutely. Are there bad rogue FBI agents? Sure are. We got plenty of evidence of that. But you got to check yourself up on the idea that the entirety of the FBI is just running around hunting down people on the right wing. That's not reality. When it happens, we should call it out and fight back against it. But that's not the whole point of the FBI. Twitter ain't real life, and just because you're only seeing per- some stories on Twitter, that's not everything. Here's the problem with this, and it goes to the same defense with a lot of the January Six guys, that, oh, they've been mistreated, and oh, they're being railroaded, and oh, they hold on a second. If you go and read through the stuff on this trial, and we'll link to it, go read it yourself, like we always say, don't take my word for it. It's really easy to not build bombs in your backyard it's really easy not to spout violent rhetoric online. And although that's not a crime in and of itself, it certainly gets the spotlight on you. And as far as being lured goes, yes, I think a few of these FBI agents have some stuff to answer for, and they should, and hopefully they will. And if they're not, that's a miscarriage of justice too. But as far as being lured, there's no part of, hey, let's go kidnap the governor where you don't just say, no, we don't kidnap people, or no, we're not going to build bombs, and no, we're not going to practice in tack gear to go attack a sitting government official and laugh about it online that you couldn't just say no and step away from it they may not be fully guilty of everything they alleged here they sure aren't innocent now hopefully that gets taken into account and justice system does what it's supposed to do you want to argue it doesn't fine but let's not act like these were babes in the wood acting innocently here they were not the fbi needs to answer for how they handled them things but slow down on the conspiracy theories because you didn't get lured into a conspiracy to kidnap somebody. Because all you had to do was go, I absolutely am not going to kidnap the governor. See how easy that was? I just did it. Watch. I'll do it again. I'm absolutely not going to participate in a plot to kidnap the governor. So you don't have to go along with it or get lured to it. Just say no. Like the old drug shirts. More tell right after this. Uh, Hotel show, you know, I always try to end on something a little uplifting. This is one of those light and a darkness kind of things. We've covered on this program extensively the opioid crisis. We've talked about it with multiple guests. I've talked about it. And when I do commentary, I've wrote about it. Something that is absolutely devastating my home state of West Virginia, along with vast other parts of the country. This is from WSAZ. That's News Channel 3 out of Charleston, Huntington, West Virginia. This is out of Charleston, though. Um, the Special West Virginia Drug Intervention Institute and the West Virginia Collegiate Recovery Network has partnered with the SAFE Project to provide education to college students, staff, and faculty regarding on how to be a recovery-friendly campus. This online training course is offered as part of a joint West Virginia DII and WVCRN initiative called Be the One, designed to reduce the opioid overdoses on college campuses and encourage recovery-friendly and supportive campus environments. Though this answer... answer and that's a really big word, and I can't say it. It's like synchrononious, but anchor synchrononious, like all together. Maybe I should have done more community college. Uh, recovery ally training. Students, staff, and faculty on the West Virginia College campuses can engage in this newly developed online training to learn about how to support individuals in recovery. This, of course, offers learners the ability to gain insight on important topics such as abusive disorder, different recovery pathways, stigma, and allyship. It's free training and can be completed 100% online. Susie Mullen is the project coordinator for WVCRN. Anticipates this education will encourage open discussion for individuals seeking recovery resources. Quote, we hope this course will help people understand how stigma can prevent individuals from accessing services and even recovery. Increased understanding and empathy are both action steps we can all take to make an impact in our families and communities. As someone who's worked in higher education and student affairs for over 25 years, I've personally witnessed how stigma regarding substance abuse and recovery can detrimentally impact students' learning and success. This training is an essential component of becoming a recovery-friendly campus community, I explained Dr. Susan Bissette of the Institute president. The Recovery Ally Training is one of the many initiatives to support on college campuses. This program complements our medication safely training, For college students, Smart Prescription University, by moving beyond prevention of substance abuse to supporting students in the actual recovery, Bissett said. Two organizations have also worked together to provide college campuses throughout West Virginia with emergency opioid response boxes. These boxes provide access to the overdose reversal drug uh, Narcan, along with real-time video instructions for overdose response. Uh, Those interested, there'll be a link in here. There's a training coordinator that they can contact. Good program, good idea. Uh, Also, that distribution of Narcan, there's another story that we're working on. We're going to touch on it when we get a little more details about getting more Narcan in more people's hands in the public so that if they come across an overdose, they've got the Narcan on hand to deal with it. Now, this also goes to another problem is these new synthetic strains of fentanyl that are coming out and some of these other issues, they're showing resistance to Narcan. That's going to be another big problem for another day. As for right now. Pretty good program. Pretty cool. That'll do it for Her-tel. Uh, Reach out to us. We've done whole segments and shows just based on your feedback and what you asked or what you want to cover. And we've done it. Show at gmail.com. Show on the Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. Make sure you're subscribing. Make sure you're sharing us. That's all we do for advertising. Word of mouth and our own social media. Growing in leaps and bounds. We really appreciate all the support you give us. As long as you're listening, we'll keep doing it it's kind of hard to do a show like this when nobody's listening because there's no point it's a partnership and you are the important part of this because you give us the most important thing you have your time and we're never going to disrespect it we're never going to take it for granted so till we see you again on herd tell or you hear us on the podcast or however you're joining us across the street around the world we hope you and yours are well we hope you are well fed and we'll talk to you again real soon for more herd tell All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.